This is Big Talk. Michael Glab here. My guest once again, two weeks in a row, is a fascinating fellow named Jim Oyser. He's a playwright, an environmental activist, and now an author. And he's just released his first book of stories. We started this chat last week and got to talking so much, we've made it a two-parter. Go to the WFHB website if you missed part one. So. Here we go with part two. Jim Poyser's new book, The Last Actor and Other Stories, uh, published by Wordpool Press. Scott Russell Sanders calls it Kafka Meets Monty Python. The uh, portion of the proceeds of this book will go to Earth Charter Indiana. Jim, what is Earth Charter Indiana exactly? Earth Charter Indiana is a statewide nonprofit organization that began in the year 2001. John Gibson and Jerry King co-founded this organization. It's based on the principles of the Earth Charter. If you've never read the Earth Charter, take a look. It's, you, you'll be astonished. You can read it in 20 to 30 minutes. And it's basically a blueprint for sustainable, just living. So 20 years ago, hundreds of people from dozens of countries took a couple of years and, and, and crafted this document. And it basically says, you can't solve the climate crisis unless you solve racism, poverty, and you must make sure you have democratic systems that are transparent. And it kind of makes that sound simple and it's very complicated, but boy, does that play out in, in the, especially in the past couple of years, right? How are we gonna solve the climate crisis until we address the issue of environmental racism? If I may, Jim, what you describe sounds like an impossible task. Yes, but, it, but it's, it's also proven to be impossible to solve our problems in silos. Right. It's like, it's like our, you know, we think in silos, we're taught in silos, we take tests across silos, and we're not, we're not being raised to integrate and to think systematically and to think circular economy. Um, and, and so it's oversimplification, but, but it's, a, it's really a, a failed way of thinking, or at least a lack of a system to for, sort of get us out of our, our, our anciently wired brains that still lead us by the nose every moment, every day. Jim has been many things in his time playwright, environmental activist. He's now an author. He's written in all sorts of genres. Uh, he, uh, he's a, a, a nonfiction author. He's written haikus. He's written plays. As a matter of fact, speaking of writing plays, I have discovered that your play, and I'm going to find the name of it here in a second. I could help you, but I'm not going to. Oh, you're so mean to me. <laughs> uh, anyway, your play, Hand on Mirror, way back, was the first play produced by the Bloomington Playwrights Project. Is that true? Yes. I, I had been writing mostly fiction up 
to that point and, and some some nonfiction uh, when I got to IU. And one day I opened up the the Herald Telephone. I think uh, uh, at that time, right? Yeah. And there was a call for, for plays by the Bloomington Playwrights Project. This brand new organization was just getting off the ground. I guess they had done one stage reading, but they were looking for a play to produce. And I thought, well, okay, I'll give that a shot. And uh, so I wrote a play and they accepted it. I will never forget that feeling of being accepted and then being invited to meet the founders of the of the playwrights project jim leonard and tom mosman just i was just so intimidated by these brilliant brilliant men and and this theater that they were creating and and i tell you just we did one production it was actually a, a director that was on sabbatical not, he was a visiting professor in the theater department tomas hernandez and he did a production of it and boy, he just, he took my play and just took it somewhere I would have never imagined in a thousand years. And, and uh, I, I, uh, I was hooked at that point. I, I shifted completely from other genres of writing into playwriting because, first of all, pretty much whatever I wrote that was of quality would be produced by the Bloomington Playwrights Project. I became part of the uh, staff in a sense. I mean, there, nobody was paid until... Maybe maybe there were some grants and stuff, and then later Steve Tim, Steve Pollitt, you know, they were able to get some kind of salary out of the situation. But anyway, it was a free a freebie position, sweat equity, so to speak, and and uh, so I ended up having a couple dozen plays produced over oh. over the next six or seven years until I left Bloomington, and even afterwards, I had a a few done. But uh, it was a heady time, and and it was fun because I got to collaborate too with a lot of people uh joanne shank the 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 artist um and uh uh steve pollitt of course and and paul sturm was was doing some really amazing avant-garde theater at that time david christman was doing some great literary stuff in 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 um in bloomington with his matchbooks project that he did and and uh it, it was just it was fun because there were so many uh, this goes right back to what we were talking about, Michael. It's like there were no there were no silos in Bloomington in the 1980s. It's like the dancers were working with the the playwrights, and the playwrights were working with the short story writers, and the short story writers uh, all wanted to hang out with Paul Sturm and his trombone. <laughs> so yeah. the dancing cigarettes were were the were the band of the time, and 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 some others. Anyway, just it, it was a great period of time. You became officially, eventually, the literary manager and dramaturge for the Bloomington Playwrights Project. What kind of uh, tasks are typical for a dramaturge? Yeah, so literary manager, I would say, is is more the behind the scenes. You get the you get the plays in and and yeah. form a form a reading committee and and make selections. Dramaturge is is, is the person that's actually witnessing the uh, rehearsal. And, and, and hanging out and probably not saying too much during the rehearsal, but consults with the director and the playwright um, after. And, and, and I guess conceivably sometimes the dramaturg can be maybe the mediator if the playwright and, and the director have a dispute. I, I don't recall anything like that in my days, but um, you know, the, the Playwrights Project, what a remarkable story. Yeah. To stay on mission for over 40 years. That is just astonishing to me. And, 
and yeah, they've grown and they own their building now and that sort of thing. But I think they're, I think they're a textbook example of how to stay on mission. Don't outgrow yourself. Right. Stay on mission, do your thing. And then, I mean, they've just, they've just done a masterful job over the decades. You've got to give a lot of credit to Chad Rabinovitz. Absolutely. He is something else. And he's, he shares time between uh, this town and Glens Falls over in New York. We, he works with the theater company out that way, too. How's he do that? Does he have a clone? Uh, I, I, I don't know how he does it because I would need naps 20 times a day, I'll tell you that. <laughs> the Last Actor and Other Stories, 11 stories, and I'm going to say it again because I love this quote. Scott Russell Sanders calls it Kafka meets Monty Python. Is it all humor? Um, yeah, mostly. I think, I think most of the story, stories have either an alternative reality or a fantastical premise. There's, there's one or two stories in there that maybe are not so much. There's one story called The Brain Stems that really is a true story of how up in Indianapolis in the, in the, late 80s and the early 90s, I would often invite the band home when I'd go out to the clubs and, and it was my favorite thing to go hear bands and dance and do crazy stuff on the dance floor. And then I'd hang out afterwards, I'd invite the, the band home. I had a big <laughs> house um, on Pennsylvania Avenue and, and I felt like I should share it with musicians because otherwise they'd have to just get in their vans and drive to the next next club um, in a different town. So the Brainstems is really kind of a true story of of, of my wife being very pregnant and a band coming uh, to, to spend the night, uh, perhaps surprising her. I don't actually remember, but uh, anyway, yeah, most of, most of the stories are, are of, a, of a fantastical nature. Uh, some of them are written all the way back in the 1980s, actually. It was a very strange archaeological experience for me to go back and, and, and find the best stories of the 30 or 40 that I've written over the years and, they're almost like these little lost children that, that I, I never thought would I'd put all together into one little living room uh, again. You make mention of your wife, and I'd like to mention that her surname is Wild Hack. And if that name rings a bell, then you know you're Kurt Vonnegut. And if you want the story behind that, I recommend that you go to the WFHB website, pull down the Big Talk tab, Go to the archive and see uh, part one of my interview with Jim Poyser. He talks about the wild hacks and some other literary references of Indiana, which I think, I wonder if they're true or not. He swears they're true. I wonder. <laughs> Very titillating. Titillating. <laughs> Are there any stories titillating in The Last Actor and other stories? And if well, they are titillating, how are they titillating? Well, you know, actually, I, I kind of went through this process toward the end, like of the, of, the, um, of the crafting process, you know. Most of my work, Michael, is, is with uh, elementary, middle, and high school kids. I, I, have, I have college interns, uh, you know, um, at Earth Charter Indiana, but... And, and I, you know, I want this to be separate, but one of the things I've learned in my life is it's always been impossible for me to separate the professional from the personal. Now, when I had a house painting business, it was a little easier to do. 
but I was also painting the houses of my friends. So how, <laughs> how do you separate that? I, I'm always amazed by people that can keep that boundary intact. In yeah. I never had that uh, luxury or capability. Uh, but I just decided, you know what? There were two F-words in this. You don't have to go back and bleep that out. There were two F-words, and I thought, you know what? I don't really need that in there. What if some middle school kid wants to pick up my book? Yeah. I, don't want, I don't want to piss off their parent. Elementary school kids use the F word. What, what am I worried about this for? I don't know. I just wanted to be conscious uh, uh, about that part of it. Um, you know, and here we are in the age of, 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 of racial injustice, climate crisis, Trump, you name it. And it's like these stories are all just from another time. They're, not, they're, from, they're from another time when things were not simpler. You know, in fact, maybe some of these stories help me understand the, not just who I am, but maybe the foundation of, of human folly. Because at base, that's what this is about. We do so many things that are amazing as, as humans, but mostly it's just, an, it's just an exercise in daily folly. And now there are just way more of us to be out follying around. <laughs> Another F word, by the way. <laughs> Jim Poyser, he made mention of working with young kids and so forth. He's the executive director, as we've alluded to before, of Earth Charter Indiana. He's got the new book out called Last Actor and Other Stories, 11 short stories, which are fabulous. Uh, it's his first book. He was dreaming for years and years and years of becoming a writer, and then eventually said, forget it. I'm not going to become a writer. And what happens? You get published. Well, you live long enough to have something bizarre happen, like a global pandemic. I mean, yeah. it, it all just came about in the most magical happenstance of a way. I had no aspirations. I'd put those stories away. I had forgotten I'd written a, a novella, a global pandemic, and 25 years ago. And it just took uh, a, a text between friends. And, and you get more of this on the previous uh, interview, but uh, just a text between myself and Colleen Wells. And, and, and she was just checking in. We're good friends and writing buddies, editing buddies. And she said, how you doing? I said, I'm doing, I'm doing embarrassingly well. And hey, by the way, I just remembered I wrote this, this pa uh, pandemic novella. I sent it to her, and the next thing I know, she said, let's publish this because maybe it'll provide a little perspective and relief to people going through some hard times. Colleen Wells is the editor and uh, has an ownership stake in Wordpool Press. Wordpool Press, which has published The Last Actor and Other Stories. It must be fun. When you got your hands on the first copy, how did you feel? Well, it was just Sunday night, and, and, and what was lovely was that my daughter, son-in-law, and granddaughter were over for family dinner. And uh, so uh, we all got to, to celebrate the, the, the arrival of, of the book. Now, this is a, a book where one has to go to Amazon.com to find it. There's no other outlet at this point. And it's with the Kindle Direct process, so you actually are, you know, sort of build it within their system. And, you know, it works pretty well. We had Rick, uh, Rick Wells, Colleen's uh, husband, uh, worked on the actual uh, interface. Um, I had a, a designer friend of mine, Andy Fry, up in Indianapolis, help with the design. Dorothy Sabian did the really remarkable uh, image of the 
uh, acting masks with the with with the uh, respirator on the hat rack, the coat rack that worked really well. So yeah, I mean to actually have it in hand was was an extraordinary thing. It's almost too weird because like yeah, this is some this is a dream of come true of who I who I was in an, in an earlier life. <laughs> so, yeah. yeah. You know, in an earlier life when I thought my imagination could outdistance reality, and I don't have that ability anymore. It's not because my brain is old. It's because life has just gotten more complex and absurd, albeit, you know, occasionally predictable how we're going to human, uh, how humans are going to behave. But, you know, I used to think that I could sort of outdistance reality, but it, it's no longer the case. Environmentalism is always on your mind. In fact, uh, I believe that I read that you were really kicked into the environment when you found out that the North Pole ice cap was shrinking. Yeah, I was just on a webinar this morning uh, uh, delivered by some very smart and credible people about messaging. Um, you know, because we're, because we're tying race and class to climate as, as, as best as one is able. And there was just, you know, once again, we were told, don't talk about polar bears. And it's like, you know what? I'm gonna talk about polar bears. I'm like that outlier in the, in the climate communication world. It, it, was the, it was the melting of the poles. Now, if you don't mind me being um, very honest with you, Michael, I had a, a a sobbing episode in this would have been 2007 where I could I took me a, a, a while to recover I had the same experience a couple weeks ago huh. and it was triggered by a story that we have melted out of climatological cycles we would be in a cooling period right now we're yeah. warming rapidly there's no other explanation than human activities We've melted in the past 30 years, 28 trillion tons of ice. I can't even imagine that. Here's an idea to imagine it. Look at, look at the, the country of, Eng of Great Britain. Right. And pile 100 kilometers of ice on top of it over the entire landmass of that country. That's 28 trillion tons of ice. Now, another person might just go numbers, numbers and I'm not a numbers person. Right. But I read that story. And, it, and here's the problem with the melting Arctic. It, it's, it's so simple, right? People think climate science is complicated. Climate is very complicated. But if you, if it's the albedo effect. When, when sunlight hits a bright surface, it bounces off. Right. If it's a dark surface, it's absorbed. That's all we need to know. The Arctic is melting because we're warming the planet. And the ice is melting, so the sunlight isn't bouncing off the ice like it used to. It's actually hitting the water, being absorbed, warming the water, melting the ice, creating less uh, reflective ice to bounce back har less harmfully into the atmosphere. That is a vortex. It's called a positive feedback loop, but the word positive is confusing in that way. Right. So I'm the guy that wants to talk about polar bears. And also, guess what? If I'm working with um, 
kids and believe me, I, you know, I do my best not to scare them or whatever, you know, they say no trauma before 10 and I try to adhere to that. But the problem is kids are picking this up here and there and they're traumatized. They can't avoid it. And so what we do is we give them something to do. How about you turn your cafeteria into a zero waste cafeteria? Uh At least start composting your food waste. Get rid of your plastic. Get rid of your polystyrene. Start a no idling campaign. So we've started all these projects in in, in schools all over the state where kids can actually tackle sustainability um, by advocating for it, doing the work. You know, they have to convince the principal. They have to have a, a, a teacher help them. But anyway, you know, kids love polar bears. So <laughs> it's like, uh, I, I'm just the guy that talks about them. And, and yes, I'm probably not going to talk about them to, to, to certain sectors of the population because they, they may not care, but it's certainly something that I do care about. Now, you talked about having crying jags over these issues. Yes. What you're talking about is very sobering, almost depressing. On the other hand, you've got a project going on that makes it comedic, this whole thing. You call it climate follies. What's that all about? Yeah, back in uh, November of 2019, I think I made a decision. You know what happened, Michael? I actually just had this idea, wrote a play about a really nice person at the pearly gates trying to get into heaven. But instead of, of, of being able to get into heaven, he was prevented by doing so because his carbon footprint was so high. So I thought, well, that's kind of funny. It's like we're not actually getting into heaven anymore because we're good people or because we're, uh-huh. we're bad people. It's like we're not getting into heaven because we had too much steak or we drove an SUV. And, of course, right. I'm, I'm, I'm cutting – I'm trying to cut some fun with the whole idea that we are individually – uh, uh, complicit in this. Well, of course we are. And the minute you're born, you're in trouble. But what is it? There's like 70 companies on planet Earth that are actually responsible for most of the trouble because yeah. they won't shift. They won't change. They want their profits. Their shareholders want profits, etc. I mean, oh my God, what a rabbit hole that almost was. Climate follies, comedy pieces for the stage. Yeah, but, but what does this mean? It's also a way to get at the stuff that isn't funny either. Okay, so yeah. I'm, asked, I'm asked to come to schools on career day. And I can, I can do it, right? I mean, drawdown.org is like, is like hundreds of career paths for kids, right? But if I'm in a certain mood, the career path for these kids could be something far darker, you know, like, I don't know, chef for cannibalism or something. You know, it's like, what do we really expect these kids are going to encounter 10, 15, 20 years from now? It can be very sobering to me. And, of course, I'm always hitting, always hitting the high road on that because negativity has its own, is its own vortex, right? It's yeah. even in the albedo effect in the Arctic, right? So I'm, I'm hitting the high road. And, and sometimes, Michael, I feel like I, I've chosen this particular work because it keeps me, it forces me to be positive. And if I'm too positive, I'm telling you, these kids, especially the high school kids I work with, they call bullshit on me in a second. Yes. If I say something that is just out of whack with the science, they really call me on it. So I think I found ways to talk about climate to kids that is both realistic, but also, I hope, empowering. Because they're angry and they need to turn that anger into something. But anyway, career day, right? So one of the plays in Climate Follies, it actually becomes an operetta. 
that is sung by the the um, <laughs> visiting person, which is me, teacher, and the kids, and they're all singing about how bereft they feel about the future. Wow, so that, might, that might be funny, or it might it might actually be um, moving. I don't know. We haven't. I haven't done that play. Right. We've been workshopping the plays on Zoom, so I can rewrite them. Yeah. So far, the ones we've worked on, I think are they're kind of funny. You know, one of them, I, one of them is kind of about a. Uh, 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 I'm going to give this away, but it's just one of 25 plays. There's there's people in prison, and they're fed beans all the time, and and they they're of course they fart, but the thing you find out is that they're all scientists, and they're being incarcerated. And they can never get parole because all they eat is beans and then they fart. And it's a fart prison. Like the more you fart, the, the longer your sentence is. <laughs> wow. <laughs> you know, methane is 70 times, 70 times more powerful than carbon dioxide. In 2013, Jim Poyser was named Hoosier Environmental Council's environmentalist of the year and he continues the work until this day he does not use styrofoam he rides his bicycle year round you practice what you preach oh not always i was at the grocery store today and as i was leaving some uh customer was uh had all her grocery items in individual to, uh, sitting in her cart all the all the individual pieces were in her cart and she was taking them and putting them into her sack her, yeah. her, or you can bring your own bags right it's like, i i didn't do that no there's things i fail at every day and in fact i'm not gonna lie i've actually had styrofoam during COVID because as much as there have been some carbon emission positives in COVID, it's been a nightmare with with plastic and styrofoam you're throwing more stuff away at this point. Uh, I haven't seen stats on this. This is just common sense. We're throwing more stuff away now than we were before is, is my fear. Everything's takeout these days. Yes, exactly. And I want to support the restaurants that I love here in Indianapolis. And some of them have better receptacles than others. But normally I would take my own box in and certainly take my own bag and my own coffee cup and all that kind of stuff. I just can't do that now. So I've, I've kind of kind of been relegated to, to the wastrel uh, status. But I do ride my bike. Uh, I just have fewer meetings to go to. You know, I used to ride my bike many times a day just to go downtown and go to a school or whatever. And, um, you know, a lot of it's uh, sitting at home. Jim Poyser has just released his first book, The Last Actor and Other Stories, it's 11 stories, one of which being a novella, 10 others being short stories. Scott Russell Sanders calls it Kafka meets Monty Python. How do you get that book, Jim? It's in Amazon.com. Okay. And uh, that just was released Sunday? I got my first copy Sunday, yes. Sunday, uh, September, whatever that would have been. Single digits, fourth or fifth. Jim Poyser playwright, environmental activist. Now he's an author. He's been a hundred other things. He even was a house painter, for goodness sake, something I just discovered during this interview. He's been a lot of things, a man with a lot of energy. Jim, thank you so much for being on Big Talk. 
Michael, thank you so much. A two-part story. That means I'm I've reached the status of Krista Detour. So that that's incredible. You you know the show. That's pretty cool. I like that. I did my homework too. <laughs>